You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I'm Ellie Fox and I help connect digital leaders in the NHS with interim talent and today I am your host. I work on the NHS team here at Evolution. Uh, What we do primarily is interim digital recruitment and we're an accredited framework supplier. Uh, The reason that we do these podcasts, uh, just give you a platform to, you know, collaborate and get out there all the positive things that you're doing. For us, it helps us understand our customers better and we do find it really interesting as well. Um, So if we could just go around and everyone introduce themselves, if we can start with you, Ben. Hi, Ellie. Uh, Thanks for inviting me today. Uh, My name is Ben Wright. I'm the Chief Clinical Digital Officer at East London NHS Foundation Trust. Um, My background is as a consultant psychiatrist in medical psychotherapy. So I've got about 30 years experience of working in mental health. And I've been in my current role in various iterations since 2012. Um, So thanks for having, having me along today. Perfect. Thank you very much. James, if we can go to you. No worries. Uh, Hi, everyone. My name is James Freed. I'm the Chief Digital Information Officer at Health Education England. Um, I've got a particular interest, as well as being the CDIO of a, I suppose, a medium sized arm's length body. um, I've got a real interest in digital readiness. So so the skills and capabilities required for the NHS and indeed social care workforce to be able to be fit for practice in the 21st century. Uh, My background is a scientist, believe it or not. I started as a scientist and then came into change management and technology. Uh, well, I say latterly, but it's the last 20 years or so. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, James. That's a good intro. Hakan, if we can go to you. Hi, I'm Hakan Akizik. I'm the Chief Information Officer for Hertfordshire Partnership University NHS Foundation Trust. It's a mental health and learning facilities trust. Um, my background um, was originally medicine. Um, I, I used to be a doctor many moons ago. I did um, doctoring and technology for a while, but I've been in um, NHS digital space exclusively for the last 20 odd years and having having worked across a number of organizations and senior positions. I, I think James, James and I probably share a passion around the readiness um, around the digital, which is probably one of our biggest bugbears. But also my main interest in digital is just making people's lives a tiny bit better, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Hakan. And last but not least, Sarah, Rev, you could introduce yourself, please. Thanks, Ellie. Um, so hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Sarah Wilkins. I'm the Chief Information and Performance Officer at Barnet, Enfield and Haringey Mental Health Trust. Uh, don't be fooled by the title. We are both a mental health and a community services provider in North Central London. Um, I've been in post here for about two and a half years. Um, but prior to that, I am I am fully NHS institutionalised. I've worked across a variety of organisations and in settings. Uh, my background is actually uh, in information governance. That was my route uh, into IT and to strategic leadership. Um, so, yeah, very glad to be here and uh, in such sterling company. Thank you, Sarah. Um, so before we go into the questions, just a reminder, if you have got anything to say, just raise your hand um, just because I'll come to you next. OK, guys. So, Ben, if we can go to you. So your question was, what is the best approach to digital transformation of health services? So if you could just give us a bit of context to that, please, and then we'll go around the panel. So um, my background is in uh, in terms of what we've done is is develop a number of clinical systems. So I developed IAPTUS, which is now used widely across um, uh, IAP services in, in England. But also we've implemented um, the ELFT version of Rio. We also use EMIS. We use System 1. Um, and the biggest challenge I find is the interface between our EPRs and the systems teams and staff. And I'm just really interested to hear the other panel uh, members of the panels, their view really on what, you know, of all the possible things we can do, what do they find works the best in terms of digital transformation for organisations? Perhaps also what works the least? I can certainly share a few of those as well, Uh, but I'd be really interested to hear what people think. Excellent, thank you, Ben. And then Hakan, if we go straight to you. Um, 
I, I think if we had a straightforward answer to that, then all of us would be uh, Richard and Elon Musk and wouldn't be sitting here. But um, I think it, uh, it, our, our trust has a very, very strong um, CQI culture. And, and this is the first organization I worked in that has such a strong CQI culture. And what I find is uh, uh, the methodology itself, which is very, very close to the agile, agile family of project management, I have to say. Um, lends itself to um, taking that big question of EPR and actually taking it down to problems we have on the ground scale and, and work with the um, professionals on the ground to identify the problem and, and, and apply the change that way. And whenever we've done something through that route, it, it has been um, reasonably successful, I would say. Um, where it absolutely fails is if if we come up with an idea, we think it's good and just get on and do it. Um, so, so I think core production, both with um, care professionals and services and carers, I think is at, at, at the heart of it, because at the end of the day, the systems are there for their purpose. So what did you mean by CQI, sorry? Uh, sorry, continuing quality improvement. Ah, right, sorry, yeah. We call it QI. I mean, we we have a, as you know, East London. Well, you may not know, East London's got a. We're very keen on quality improvement, and um, we've got a extensive experience in that. And I think, um, as you've said, you're absolutely right. If you apply quality improvement to a specific point within the care pathway or a specific point within clinical practice within a specific team, it's fantastic at engaging staff. And I think one of the things I really like is the way in which it's enabled a can-do responsive culture within my organization. I think where QI fails is the scalability, is the transformation at scale to deliver that across the organization. I think it doesn't really have the, the function, despite claiming it does, it doesn't have the functionality to do that. So I completely agree as a, as a localized change methodology, it's fantastic, um, both individually for the item and culturally, but not at scale, is my experience. Thank you, Ben. Sarah, you've got your hand raised, so we'll go straight over to you. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think Hakan did well to get in first there because uh, he's made the main point. I, w I wish I knew the answer, Ben. Um, but I think for us, where we've had um, success, it's been both clinically driven or identified by um, the person who needs it rather than you know an IT techie or a strategic intention from the center um, so there's a real business demand for it um, and it's and it creates a tangible um, difference uh, to a process or you know removes a barrier to something um, and then for me it's about the sale and the user adoption um, so without the engagement of staff, I mean, when I came to my organisation currently, um, it did feel a bit like IT was in the room and doing what IT wanted to do, uh, regardless of what was actually needed um, outside the front door. Um, and I think we've had real success in, you know, learning from the pandemic. But actually, if, if we just take video consultation, um, there was a, a absolute demand to continue care um, and it drove our digital maturity and transformed the way we've delivered care over the last 18 months simply because it was a business need and all the concerns that we had about if, if we'd planned it staff training you know is our network robust enough um, they were all outweighed by the fact that we just needed to get on and do it and clinicians embraced it and we worked and iterated that problem um, as we went. Over to you, James. Thanks very much. All good points. Um, I love the continuous quality improvement point. I love your observation, Ben, about the limitations. Um, uh, your previous chief executive, Navina Evans, is now ours. We stole her and yes. she's been a huge um, advocate of quality improvement methodologies. Um, I would say QI and digital suffer traditionally from the same things and I and that's I've got a little uh, list of three that I think are necessary for successful digital transformation and I think the thing that we have lacked in the past is the first one I think successful and actually uh, my, my little my little pet hate is this concept of digital transformation rather than just transformation in general um I think that 
all transformations in the future are likely to have an element of digital in them just because that's a tool set that's growing and growing and growing um and if not it doesn't matter it should be the same sorts of methodologies that we use you've got a different skill set for a different tool set and that's the only reason why digital is an important word other than that that this, the the reasons why transformation succeeds or fails are the same regardless broadly speaking so anyway sorry i've teased you now so there's a there's a first thing that we don't have um leadership i think it's that front of house senior hierarchical leadership particularly in the nhs so in the health and care industry which has so much value for hierarchy i can't do this because my boss hasn't told me i can it's the assumption that we don't have autonomy and that's for lots of good reasons you know the health and care industry is the most dangerous industry in the world if we make the wrong mistake then people die right so that's the reason why we have that hierarchy it's, it uh, um nonetheless um, we're in this world now where if you don't give people autonomy, you can't move at pace. And the digital world is progressing so fast, you need to get a better balance. Your senior leadership needs a better balance between um, uh, where you can uh, innovate and where you need to have that hierarchy and that governance. So, so number one is the right level of leadership that really supports you. The second thing for me is an empowered autonomous team that is multidisciplinary and has the right skill set and whether that be security and IG Sarah or whether that be uh, um, procurement and commercial or whether that be training or whether that be around the particular digital tool that you're employing or whether that be the clinical expertise that enables you to understand the process and how you can redesign it safely that you need to have uh, an autonomous multidisciplinary empowered team and the third thing for me is the focus of that team needs to be absolutely laser focused on the user that they're supporting and in some cases we make the um totally forgivable mistake of assuming that our end user for every single transformation that we make is the patient and that's not always the case you know the main user for an electronic patient record is likely to be your cl clinical body and designing an electronic patient record so that it can be well used by your clinical body is much more important because ultimately it's having well-served clinicians that gives you a better outcome for your patient so understanding your user understanding your customer and being absolutely laser focused on meeting their needs best is the third thing for me thank you james i know ben you were seem to be nodding your head quite a lot there have you got anything like I, think, you know, I think everyone's points are, uh, are great and I think it's it, it's lovely to to hear people echoing my own thoughts on it. I think James your point on transformation really becoming non-digital you know we were, I mean is is actually I think where we are as an organization I, I'm I'm now positioning ourselves and our, our my fellow um, chief digital officer we're kind of positioning ourselves in our narrative to begin to just to move slightly to the side we appointed our chief operating officer as the chair of the Digital Operation Transformation Board. Um, and the idea here is that not only does the business own um, uh, the transformation process, but actually my not so secret plan is that the organization begins to see digital transformation as its transformation vehicle. The digital is a key ingredient, but actually transformation, the ongoing process of improvement across the organization, which is systematic and planned, has a massive digital element to it, but it's seen as the vehicle of change. And I think that's that is the future of where we need to get to, I think, um, as mature or mature digital and mature organizations in the future. That's definitely not a secret plan now, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Has anyone got anything else to add to answer that question before we move on to James's? If, if I can quickly come back, I think James, your, your point around perceived lack of autonomy is very, very important. And, and, and I think the perceived element uh, that there are some interesting um, 
research done with executive teams and their direct reports where there are some clear frustrations where executive team think their direct reports are not acting independently enough and their direct reports are complaining about not having enough autonomy. So that, that perception of not having autonomy to get on with things and make decisions is, is, is very important and probably something we should address at the onset of any transformational journeys. Thank you, Hakan. And I think that leads nicely on to James's question, which was how do you best balance the need to governance with the need to allow people freedom to innovate? If you could just give a bit of context, James. Thank you. I mean, I, I was starting to touch upon it in my answer to Ben's question, but it, it comes from a genuine difficulty that I face. So I, I am a Chief Digital Information Officer. I've got the, the very traditional responsibilities around digital governance, you know, making sure that we're compliant with law, that we are uh, not doing things um, that are not safe, that we're doing things that are secure, that we are um, abiding to our own internal strategic standards as well. So lots of things that tell you not to do stuff, <laughs> basically. And then I'm trying to balance it with this, this responsibility that I've had um, over the last 12 months to create a digital first organization, which seems to be how do you help speed up innovation? How do you help drive autonomy? How do you help reduce the the rules and the laws and the guidance that are, that are impacting on every single team out there who's trying to make a change happen? And it feels to me that these are two very diametrically opposed pressures. And I was wondering how you three have tackled that. Over to you, Ben. Yeah, this is a real dilemma, um, James, and um, and I think it's it it shows. Um, I think a mature organisation has a sense of that dilemma and a sense of that tension, um, and a sense of the balance between these two conflicting demands. The way we approach it, um, uh, because I'm also the organisation's clinical safety officer, firstly is to try and create absolute clarity around the process, and I think people's frustration can often be more that they don't know what to do at the next step of their project rather than um, actually it's too much or it's too difficult. Um, and then the second, uh, and this is a, a, a pet thing that's close to my heart, is really simplicity of process. Is that step, is that action, is that particular governance activity absolutely necessary? Does it deliver a return for the organisation around assurance or governance? And if it doesn't, having the courage to strip it out, I think for us as leaders, we've done that. I'll make a not a, a, a kind of a bit of a confession around clinical safety that, you know, I've devised I, when I first implemented the, the clinical safety standards at East London. I went by the book. It was, to be honest, over inclusive, over onerous and had even me as the person who designed the process confused at times. Um, that was our first bite at the, the cherry, as it were. And then in the second iteration that I've just done, we were radical in cutting out stuff, having implemented it for a few years, realised what didn't work, realised what was too clunky, realised what was too onerous, just cut it out. And it is much simpler even than the NHS recommended template, but it works. It's, it's streamlined, it's clear, it's transparent, and I think it does more for patient safety than having an overly onerous system. So I think leaders have to have the, the courage to cut things out pretty radically unless that activity or thing delivers a return in terms of an assurance or a, a safety or a, a governance um, uh, process. So I think clarity and simplicity with my, my two hot tips. Thank you, Ben. Sarah, we can go over to you. Yeah, so just following on from Ben's point, I think, um, I think that courageousness is uh, something that only comes from experience. And so and I think that comes back to the previous uh, question that we discussed around leadership. You need to have some courageous and confident um, leaders who are prepared to take um, some degree of risk. Um, you know, so having confessed my IG background, uh, I will say that one of the things um, that I used to train uh, junior staff on was that if they were ever concerned around uh, whether to share information or not um, in relation, you know, certainly to vulnerable children, that I would much rather uh, face um, an ICO tribunal than the coroner's court or be, you know, part of a serious incident review. And so I think there is something about being pragmatic and re retaining that sense of what is the reason we're doing this? Is, is it going to benefit patient care, 
staff experience. Um, I also want to say that I think one of the things that uh, we've learned over the last 18 months is about failing fast. So not being afraid to take that risk on a small scale, um, but equally try, you know, trying it out and then thinking, is, is this, you know, working and making a very rapid assessment. Um, so you don't have to go big bang with everything that you do and deploy it across 100 people when you can get that, um, you know, a tested risk assessment in practice uh, on a relatively small scale quite quickly. Um, so I, I think that's that's where I'm landing on that. Thank you, Sarah. No, Hakan, you seem to be nodding your head quite a lot over them points. Have you got anything to add? I am indeed, and, and, and I think, like Sarah said, um, of all the horrible things that it brought, there were some um, interesting experiences we had during the response to the pandemic as well. Like I did a presentation to our board on what we learned during the pandemic, and one of it was that we can actually do digital things fast and well at the same time. And a lot of the time it was by recognition that our risk appetite wasn't in the right place and that uh, maybe at times as the NHS, we spend more time on things like the risk management process, which doesn't leave enough time to actually mitigate the risks. And being able to recognise that, uh, I, 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 I think is a, is a big step. But like Sarah said, all of this comes with maturity and, and confidence. So there's something to be said about um, taking um, manageable risk and allow yourself to fail on a small scale, but rapidly so that you can learn and grow. Thank you, Hakan. Ben? This, this clear statement to the people we, we support as leaders about how they can fail, what would happen, you know, what we see as the risks so they can get into our minds as we understand that as important, you know, in terms of what is, how we can facilitate their adventurousness as it were, and what is okay and what isn't. I think, you know, I like that comment. I thought that was really, really, um, really helpful. Excellent. James, have you got anything that you'd like to add back to the points that have been raised? Oh, I thought that was really useful. So so I, I, what I heard from Ben is a, is suggestions around clarity and simplicity. What I heard from Sarah was um, a point around pragmatism and making sure that you keep you're keeping your laser focus on the customer, I suppose, on the patient. Uh, and, and so you don't let the, the questions around governance get in the way of doing your job. What I heard from Hakam was a, a, a recognition that we've got um, a better understanding of what risk is necessary um, or uh, I suppose desirable really and how we might better post-COVID think about explicitly um, uh, increasing our risk appetite and getting that in the right place. If I reflect on where we are now, so firstly I think as an arm's length body it is harder for us to articulate our customers directly um, uh, and I was looking so uh, and I think Ben's points around the the clarity and the um, simplicity that that's where I'd choose to start. Actually, I kind of I kind of think the pragmatism point that uh, and the risk point that Sarah and Hakan were, were making they're really good overarching points. This is how you should view the problem. But in terms of pragmatically tackling it, we did map our processes. We had seven different sign-offs for a digital change. Each one could involve multiple iterations of the same meeting. You know, so it could take a significant amount of time and we weren't measuring how long it took. Um, now, we definitely have ambitions of simplifying all of that. I think we're just on the journey. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks, James. Back to you, Sarah. I was just going to follow up on that, James. So you weren't measuring how long it took, but I bet you got beaten up for not making progress in a timely fashion. Yeah, we definitely did. It's funny, isn't it, how the how the focus though for for the for the governance crew is on making the right decision no matter how long it takes. You know, we approach these these problems from our own perspective. And when your perspective is or the assumption is if I let something through that has a negative impact, then I'm gonna I'm gonna be up for it. So it's it doesn't matter how long it takes, as long as I get to the perfect answer. It's kind of like the pressure, the perspective of of, of the governance teams, certainly my governance teams. And um, I think what what we've been trying to do is just try and see the problem from other people's perspectives a bit, from our users' perspectives, our own staff's perspectives in that in that context. Ben. 
I mean, because because we work, I work a lot with clinical safety. I come at it from the perspective that there will be negative consequences to any change, and it's about the balance between and the organisation. What I say to the organisation is, you know, do these potential negatives or actual negatives are they outweighed by the benefits that we're going to have here? And I think encouraging the culture of the organisation organisation to develop an appetite and the ability to digest that perhaps a bit more difficult information, I think, is also important. But for your system, I'd simply be having a single governance group, a top level, senior board level to oversee it, and then having clarity around the bits that feed into that, as it were, in terms of taking it forward and seeing if you can combine some of the processes. But yeah, that sounds like a challenge. I, I, I'm... Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Over to you, Hakan. I, I, I think made the point but one one of the things that I think we got right was setting up the digital innovation board um, which gets delegated responsible from the trust board to make decisions um, so that the way that we manage it is that they, you know with the digital strategy the, the portfolio for each year and and the investment in it is is determined by the board and and then from there on the, um, the digital and, um, innovation and board is responsible for actually delivering and making the decisions and we've got very good understanding that you can't bring actually a implementation business case unless you've got your clinical safety case made in it unless you've got your dpia already done and a lot of those we've taken the orders from the project people um, to, to the IMNT side, if, if that makes sense. So rather than giving people a form to fill in for the PIA, we actually sit down with them and, and the IG team actually fills in the DPIA form together with them, which seems to help with the speed of it as well. Because I'll be honest with you, some of those forms I, I couldn't fill it in myself. So uh, we're just about halfway through, uh, well, just over halfway through. Uh, still got Hakan and Sarah's questions to go. And then I know, James, you asked another question as well. Uh, so we'll come back to you last if, if we have got enough time. Uh, so if you get yourself back off mute, Hakan, because we're coming over to you now. But the uh, your question was, how do we secure sustainable care professional participation in digital initiatives, given the significant, significant time pressures they are facing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a time in my just a bit, put a bit more explanation that there, there was a time in my earlier career where we were desperately trying to get um, um, clinical and care professional input in, in, into the projects and programs. And I think generally in the NHS, we're probably in a better place because we have a lot of uh, willing participants. The problem we're experiencing at the moment is despite um, understanding uh, the importance of, of the programs but also despite specifically asking for those programs to be initiated we are in a place where the demand is um, such that it is very very difficult to um, pull um, working and care professionals from the call phase and and create the time and space to have those discussions around transformation and we know that if we don't do that, the project will fail. So the way it transpires with us is usually by way of delays rather than just plowing on pointlessly against an arbitrary deadline, which we know is not going to be a useful thing to do. So I, I'd be very interested to know how people try to tackle it because I think it's a fairly common problem. Thank you, Hakan. Ben, you had your hand raised. It looks like it's gone off. Is, did you have I was going to let James go first. Oh, OK. <laughs> Over to you, James. We'll go back to Ben. Thank you. I, I feel a bit like the um, imposter on uh, uh, on the call asking uh, answering this question because um, uh, although we do employ a lot of clinicians, we don't deliver care, right? So uh, um, as, as an organisation, having said that, we do have uh, uh, some, well, many, in fact, digital tools that rely on um, well, that are aimed at clinicians and therefore if you want to do testing or you want to do development, you want to do even leadership of these sorts of projects, then you're reliant on the same sort of capacity issues that you're referring to. So uh, my first observation is the NHS is run red hot. There aren't that many other um, uh, organisations where you would buy routine schedule uh, employees to work 40% over their contracted hours. <laughs> And uh, and I have spoken to uh, uh, board managers who have to do that for their nursing staff. That the so we're all we we are we are super stretched, and I think that needs to be recognised. 
there, there also needs to be recognised that, that in order to make change happen, you need a little bit of space, you need that capacity to, to undertake it. However, I do think there are things that you can do. So the, the first is make sure you don't bite off more than you can chew. So um, the more that we have uh, projects led by uh, uh, and initiated by technologists, quite frankly, the more we are disconnected from the genuine needs of the of the uh, clinical staff. Um, and I think that the more that you have got projects, you've got change initiatives that are led by clinicians or led really by those who are impacted by them, the more they've genuinely got skin in the game and the more they, they will genuinely find that the, the space and the time to do to do this. The second very practical issue is is that we tend to look at IT change still in quite a waterfall way, you know, with big bits of change that require large amounts of time and large amounts of resources based on quite a lot of assumptions. I'm going to need to buy an electronic patient record. It's going to need to cost 10 plus million pounds. It, it, it's um, it's going to take three months in the configuration or three months in the training, and then you've got the implementation phase, and it's very blocky. Uh, it's kind of the antithesis of modern agile development techniques, uh, which is small, iterative, scalable, you know, the typical think big, start small, scale fast type type approach. Um, we've got a market which really caters to that waterfall way of thinking rather than that agile way of thinking. But I think as time goes on, we will see a, a more mature market for healthcare provision of, of um, technology enabled change rather than technology solutions, let's call it that. Uh, and I think we'll have a greater maturity to be able to tackle just a little bit and just just get that little bit more information on iterative scale that enables us to to tackle change as and when there's that ebb and flow that flex within the system i think agile techniques are designed for this sort of um really constrained um uh, situation uh, uh, it, there's just a lot of constraints at the moment we've got the constraints on capacity we've got the constraints on the market um I think things are going to get better over time, but we do need that language around agile, I think. Thank you, James. Ben, if you want to go now. So so I want to respond to the question just by underlining a point that was made in response to my question around transformation, that, that clinical involvement um, is absolutely critical. So, um, uh, but my first point is to say, do we really need the clinician to carry out this specific task? And by this specific task, I mean organize the meeting, fix up a meeting room, take notes of what happened, run around. Or, you know, there's so much that actually we don't need clinicians to do that we end up giving to them because for whatever reason, we don't have the kind of auxiliary digital stroke administrative resource within the system to support it. So I think that'd be the first thing is really try to make the engagement that you have with your clinicians really feel to them like it's adding value and when they're having the dialogue with you that it's actually something that they really have the sense in which only they can make that contribution um, so it's really valued and that will bring them back I think and then to show when you've done that how it's made an impact so that's the, the first point limit their involvement or focus their involvement on areas where they really are adding value and deliberately and explicitly exclude the other bits that you, whatever you can do to others. The second thing I'd say is what grade of input you need, because if the input that you need is more generic in terms of how do you want to configure this system to opt to optimize the workflow in your team? Well, actually, you don't need a digital expert clinician to do that. You need a clinician who is telling you what they want. And that, I think it comes back to our earlier point about digital transformation actually really being about transformation and trying to get the team to own this as a transformation for their team in their department um, or models of care so that it's done at a team level, as it were, um, uh, for that activity. And at the, at the most digital level of expertise where we actually need clinical informaticians Ultimately, you got to have them employed with you know, WTEs identified in their job plan, properly employed, properly enumerated with an appropriate professional development structure. 
um, so that you've got them on tap, um, not having people who you pull in and pull out for each project as it gets funded centrally, and then they find they've got to go back to their day job at the end. It needs to be seen as a, as a profession, um, and then you'll have them on tap as needed. Thanks, Ben. I think they were really good suggestions there. Sarah, seeing you were nodding your head and thought that you were writing a few things down. Have you got anything to add on to that? Yeah, so I have to say that having heard Hakan's question, I was like, yeah, that really resonates uh, with me. Um, so we've got um, a huge uh, community mental health transformation programme uh, going on at the moment. It's one of the most significant programmes of work uh, in the last 10 years. Um, and we are really struggling uh, with clinical uh, engagement. And I, and I think I think that, that both um, James and Ben have made really uh, strong points, but that doesn't change the situation on the ground. So acknowledging that we're running red hot, we've also got to acknowledge that we've got a huge shortage of clinicians and we're really struggling to recruit. So there comes a point where we have to prioritise delivery of care over um, some of these transformation programs and, and that's really difficult because without the transformation um, we're never going to come to a an equitable um, or a sustainable model of care going forward. Um, I don't know that I have an answer for you Hakan, so, so the, the thing that's working for us is um, we're augmenting our, our clinical XIO roles so um, we've had um, a CCIO in post and we've now got agreement to um, recruit an associate CCIO and a CNIO um, and I hope that this will be the start of a journey to um, whether they're clinical champions whatever we call them but more you know rather than having them centered in uh, the IMT or digital team that they become embedded across the organization because what I find is it's the same people who put their head above the parapet every time um, and there's no way that we can sustain that. Um, and I, I really do think this is an issue because it, it, it's, it's a bit of a vicious circle um, that, you know, how do we transform care without it being clinically driven and yet our clinicians are too busy delivering care to really have that space to think about how it could be changed and transformed for the better. So I, I don't think I've got a solution um, other than another plea that perhaps, James, we could plunder some of your clinicians that are employed at HEE to come and do some of this work. Well, so many of them, many of them do work in active service, I should say. Thanks, guys. Has anyone else got anything to add onto that before we go into Sarah's question? No? Okay, excellent. So, Sarah, I know we, uh, I think it was yesterday we spoke about this, didn't we? And you um, tried to really simplify it so I could let you do most of the explaining. Uh, so, how do we ensure technology solutions are co produced with our patient population? Yeah, so we've talked a lot today about um, that clinical drive um, around technology transformation and, and that digital implementation. But I think, again, reflecting on what we've learned from the pandemic, um, there's definitely a need for greater engagement, um, certainly for mental health um, service users um, to be involved in co-production of services um, and I think that extends to digital services now. Um, and I know, Ben, you've done some great work um, around digital inclusion. Um, and, I, and I'm just really keen to understand, you know, what you think would be the way forward um, and how we can engage um, our local population um, as well as our staff in driving this agenda. Over to you, Ben. So, yeah, thanks, Sarah. I think it's a, a, a great question. I mean, I, I think the first thing is I'm extremely fortunate in that the, the baton around people participation actually was started, you know, um, uh, not by me and long, I think perhaps even long before I joined the organisation. And ELFT has a very long tradition of people participation um, and it's very mature. Um, and uh, so I think the first thing is, um, it, I would say that our uh, burgeoning success in this area 
relies extremely heavy on the existing culture, the existing structures, the fact that we have an AD in an associate director in people participation who's really competent and really skilled. There's a full network underneath him that he supports. There's a culture in the organization that's very robust. And I think I rely very heavily on that. So I think that's the first thing. Having got that in place, um, uh, we've appointed a digital people participation lead who's functioning as the go-to person, and they have set up a digital, digital uh, people participation board uh, who has representatives um, from across the organization and are engaged, but also embedded with the Central Trust digital, uh, People Participation Committee. Um, we're setting up a program and we've established really there are two major streams of what 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 they call um, the digital haves and the digital have nots. So the digital have nots, we're engaging in a digital uh, a survey to establish the digital preferences, needs, uh, training, resources that our, our mental health service users um, uh, need, as it were, to become digitally engaged so that we can plan and support their digital engagement within the broader organization. Um, and that, that survey is just about to go out and we think that it's going to be the first of its type that actually identifies what the digital needs and the digital status of people using our, our services are and how we can best help them and what they find most helpful. For the digital haves, they do contribute to the specific elements within the organisation impact directly on them. For example, our patient portal, and that's, I think, going to be increasingly important. Um, uh, but just to, to, to sandwich my comment with you know, where we began, which is we do all this within our overarching people participation framework. People are paid for their time. They're valued on the basis of a culture of co-creation of the solutions from the get go. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for that. Hakan, you got something to add? Sorry, were you going to ask something to Ben? I was, but it, it can wait, Hakan. Okay. Well, in a, that, I, I, I think in, in, a, in, a, in a similar way, um, our organisation also has a very strong tradition of um, co-production. So, as, as you would imagine, um, we have similar um, structures and um, similar services or councils. Um, when we did the digital strategy um, um, together with the workshops we did with our staff, we also done workshops with the service users, diving into you know even some complex issues around where is our appetite with artificial intelligence, automated decisions, where does the line sit with privacy, how do you, you know, differentiate between provision versus choice when it comes to digital, etc. And then we carried that on and, and built um, the, uh, their participation into our governance. Actually, the Digital Innovation Board that I referred in our earlier discussion has three um, um, subcommittees that oversee um, project portfolios. And one of them is the Empowered Service Users and Carers um, subcommittee. So and anything that uh, directly impacts on um, our services and carers are, are managed, that portfolio is managed by that subcommittee and it is chaired by our CCO and the members are our representatives from our services and care councils. So I think, um, like Ben said, uh, we have to make sure that people can participate and, and they're uh, remunerated for their time and efforts in, in doing so, so, so that we can do it in a more sustainable way and in a similar way. Any project we, we implement uh, that, that has a direct impact on services and carers, uh, then we require to um, have there in the project board as well. Thank you, Hakan. Sarah, we'll go over to you. Thanks, Elliot. And uh, thanks, Hakan and Ben. They're both really helpful answers, really insightful. I suppose my, my question is um, well, I, I'm reflecting on your answers that we are much earlier in our journey um, around um, that that digital maturity, um, I think. And, and we have started to bring on board um, patient and service user representation onto our digital steering group, for example. But um, I suppose my, the bit I'm interested in is how easy have you found it to engage them in those digital conversations? Because even with the best of intentions, 
for me it, it's you know that that's still an IT issue seems to be the the main uh, response that I get and um, and I just wondered how how you've done that. James if you'd like to go. So I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that follow-on question uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna let Ben and Hakan answer it if that's okay and I'll come in later. Of course. Hakan? Um, I mean, at a very specific project level, Sarah, our engagement team actually has a long list of services and carers who would like to work with us to improve our services. So when a project comes up, um, then we reach out to that group and ask who would like to participate. And that, that's how we tend, tend, to, tend to secure them. But I think you're absolutely right. You have to be very careful around uh, what discussion you're trying to. So if you take something as simple as using um, air quotes here, um, video consultations. The discussion can't be around, do you prefer Zoom versus Teams versus, but if the, if, if, if the discussions frame more around what makes your life easier when you're using a video consultation, what would you expect the tool to have in it? I think that you get to have a lot more meaningful discussions. If, if you take AI, for example, if you take discussion around, you know, algorithms and decision makes very uncomfortable. But, but if you take the discussion around, uh, you know, help, helping, helping you to navigate um, the plethora of self-help, we have a bit better, but what makes it easier? How would you like to navigate it? Then, then you tend to get a, a bit more meaningful engagement. But you're absolutely right, and I'm sure we've done it several times. If you go back with a very technical discussion, the response usually is, well, you know, quite rightly, isn't that your job to figure out? <laughs> Thank you, Hakan. Ben, we'll go to you and then go back to James. So I, I agree with what Hakan's just said, and I think the that how we present the issue and, and the expertise we're attempting to elicit from our, our service users is critical because, of course, what they're expert at, at is using systems, not the internal guts of those systems. And I think that the point Hakan's just made is really important. I think we've gone probably a, a few steps backwards in the sense that we 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 didn't really quite start with um, we have this project we want your input although we do do that but we start a bit earlier with actually it's an open field you know let's let you let's have you as the service users begin to define you know what you think the priorities are how we want to work what we want to do and then there's been a dialogue that's that's crystallized out these digital haves and digital have-nots as it were. And then the kind of the framework has flowed from that in terms of our work. And that's been somewhat of an organic process. And we do draw, we now draw on that group to have opinions on specific domains and specific areas. But I do see that program of work developing progressively over time. And thankfully, we have some digital aspirant funding to support that. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. Thank you. Over to you, James. Thanks very much. I, I was going to offer a slightly different perspective on your question, Sarah. So um, because I think there are some implications in how we do engaging with patients in particular that that is it's worth exploring. So the first is the, co the concepts of representation and uh, and what that implies. You know, if, if you have some patients on a group, does that mean that you are meeting the needs of all your patient group, for instance? Or does it mean that it's not your fault if you get it wrong? <laughs> Is it their fault for not knowing what all, all patients want? Um, sorry, I'm being a little bit facetious in order to make the point, because we, we, we come at these things with a whole bunch of assumptions, actually. Um, and uh, the second assumption that I think that we sometimes tackle the concepts of patient engagement from is from the uh, from the perspective of the problem I want to solve rather than the perspective you as the patient want us to solve mm. uh, and if I could make a super facetious point it'd be a bit like you uh, commissioning a house to be built and then the builder saying um, uh, which brand of drill bits do you want me to use and I, I don't care what kind of drill bits you use, uh, quite frankly, uh, as long as I have a decent house at the end that looks nice and that keeps me safe and warm and is connected to all the uh, the uh, amenity. That's what I'm really want wanting. 
and I think that when we start limiting that that um, patient engagement either through the perspective of the tool that we're asking them to use or or the platform or the um, yeah all the interaction then we we eliminate some of the richness in feedback that we could get so I guess what I'd say that's that's some of the assumptions that I think we sometimes come to in terms of sort of pragmatic solutions so um firstly uh user centeredness uh user design is something that that it's worth us all having a little bit of expertise in but there are genuine experts in this there are people who go to user design school and user experience school we have for the first time actually in the last year i don't know if you know this we've got our very first head of profession for user research in the nhs a guy called simon dixon he works for nhsx very talented gentleman and has been supporting the recruitment of user researchers and user designers into the NHS, um, which is brilliant. You know, it's an area that we've we've not really got into before. Um, secondly, we've got we use different tools depending on what the question is that we want to answer. So in industry, uh, uh, you might want to first identify whether you've got a problem at all and things like service specific net promoter scores and i've used a lot of jargon there but rather than thinking if you're in if you're responsible for a service you want to ask the customers of that service whether you're doing okay or not basically it's the equivalent of the um yeah the happy sheets that you might you might fill in or the 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 um the smile or frown button on the ipad that's stuck to the door next to outpatients it, it gives you an idea about whether you've got a problem or not and some of those might say okay tell us a bit about your experience that might tell you where the problem is there's a diff a different level of of uh technique that you use to find out how to do the solution so the co-production piece is about how you design a solution that's best likely most likely to to best meet the needs of your users and that's a little bit around really good quality design skills and a little bit about good quality representative deep rich conversations with the users of your service but i think that disentangling the technology platform from the service that's being delivered in some cases can feel a little bit artificial thank you james thank you all so much for taking the time out and joining me i think i hope you've really found some value in the conversation and the suggestions made